Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today, we are continuing our New Year's series with a look at the U.S. Congress and what we can expect in the coming year. The beginning of 2023 was marked by significant turmoil in the House of Representatives as Republicans struggled for nearly a week to elect a new Speaker of the House. While Kevin McCarthy finally got it done after a historic 15th vote, this chaotic sequence of events has raised numerous questions about what to expect from Congress going forward. These questions are relevant not only to Americans, but also our allies, including Europe. Among the more burning questions are how the narrow and divided House Republican majority might affect the future of U.S. support to Ukraine, and whether Europe can expect any cooperation towards resolution of transatlantic irritants such as the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, to break down the short and longer-term implications of the events in Congress, we're very happy to welcome Peter Baker and Sarah Binder to the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Thanks for including me. Of course, um, very brief bios. Peter is the White House correspondent for the New York Times. He's responsible for reporting on President Biden. Uh, and he previously wrote about Presidents Donald J. Trump and Barack Obama for The Times and Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush for The Washington Post. And Peter, it just eluded me the name, the title of your new book. It's called The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. <laughs> uh, really a, an important piece of work. So also encourage Brussels Sprouts readers to check that out. Um, and Sarah is a senior fellow in the Governance Studies uh, Program at the Brookings Institution and Professor of Political Science at George Washington University, where she specializes in Congress and legislative politics. Okay, uh, Peter, maybe I can start with you and really just to kind of set the table. I mean, you've been following this kind of stuff for a very long time. And if you were to kind of set the table for listeners um, where would you place us in the arc of this story of kind of contemporary American politics? Can, how, in, in, in thinking about what we saw in January with Congress, um, how would you describe kind of that th this current moment? Well, I think we're still in the in the middle of, and maybe we're heading towards some sort of a uh, conclusion at some point of the Trump era. Uh, Biden may be president, but we're still living in Trump's world in which it is a, a country of deeply polarized tribes that are um, uh, at odds and are no closer toward reconciling since Trump left office than they were back then. President Biden promised and, and aspired, I think, to be a unifier. I think he has made an effort to do that. He wants to do that. Certainly, he's gotten some bipartisan legislation that he's proud of through, but the broad strokes of our country are still very, very deeply uh, divided into camps. And I think that you saw that manifesting itself in the House as it took over. This election, I think the, there's been a misreading of this election to some extent, an overreading of this election. Obviously, there was no red wave. The Republicans failed to achieve what they wanted to achieve and what historically we could have expected them to achieve, especially where the president is weak in the polls and inflation is high as we saw it. So there's no reason, there's certainly reason for Biden and Democrats to feel good about having done better than they expected, but they still lost control of the House. And it's still a deeply divided country. We are a 51 to 49 Senate, if you count cinema as a proximate Democrat, and we are a 222 to, to, to oh, I'm gonna get this wrong, 213 
uh, House. I mean, it's so achingly close. This is not a mandate for one party or the other. It's a mandate for gridlock and dysfunction and confrontation. And I think that's what we're about to see in spades over the next two years. Sarah, feel free to add anything to that. And I guess, did we learn anything new um, with this kind of whole episode around the speakership? Did did you, was, was there anything that surprised you or was this kind of entirely expected? So I think, so first of all, the, the notion that the House Republicans were going to be a fractured, slim majority, I think we knew that going into the speakership election. Uh, there certainly was no notice that um, Speaker-to-be McCarthy had sewn it up in that month of December um, when all these demands were uh, quite vocally and publicly being made um, on McCarthy. So in, in some ways, I think uh, it's somewhat of what we expected. I don't think any of my fellow legislative scholars would have pinged the number 15 or 15 votes uh, to get the speaker across. Barely, right? barely, barely across, across the line. So uh, I think the way I think about what we just witnessed over the last uh, two you know, week plus uh, in the House is that these fractures we saw are emblematic of fractures that we knew uh, were there. Um, so the speakership contest, I don't think of it as like the root cause of difficulties going forward, but it, it's reflective. It's a symptom of the difficulties, especially within the House Republican conference. Uh, but um, as uh, Peter suggested or hinted, right, um, problems generally within uh, this Republican, broader Republican party, right? Um, we're going to see these divisions play out in ways I'm, uh, we'll come to talk to this morning, I'm sure. Well, thank you very much for that. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, how we might see this uh, manifest itself over the next couple of months. New York Times had a really good front page article today talking about uh, committee assignments uh, and oversight and does it really matter? And so it's tempting to sit here and to say, you know, that was a lot of excitement and a lot of, of really juicy headlines uh, in terms of the, the struggle over the speaker, historic too, quite frankly, as we all know. Uh, but actually, as as the legislative year gets underway and, and the committee assignments are finally done and uh, we, we get going, you're not going to see that kind of revolutionary manifestation that we saw during the speaker's fight. And this is going to be actually overcome by the routine of the House. We've got the debt ceiling, of course, is going to be the first test of that theory. But I think it's tempting for people to say, look, that that was that was then. But, you know, when the year gets underway, uh, you know, this is going to be a small vocal minority out to cause trouble uh, and they're not really going to get their way. Do you think that is an accurate reading or do you think that's really underestimating what could possibly happen given concessions made by the speaker and other other facets of these of the of, of how the house runs where a small group can actually have a big say in what happens i think you know look nobody's lost money in the last few years by betting on washington being broken right in other words this is i i'm not a believer that kumbaya is going to happen here and everything's going to work out fine they will eventually be because there have to be deals on things like the debt ceiling and spending because you have to have a government open. But that doesn't mean you can't have enormous upheaval between now and then. And it doesn't mean it wouldn't be a default potentially on the debt or at least part of the debt. And I, I think that we shouldn't underestimate the potential for great 
uh, uh, fracturing and, dis and dysfunction here. It, it, to, to take 15 ballots to get to a speaker, which we haven't done in a century and a half, I think is a harbinger of where things are going to go. And I think that there's going to be a desire on the part of the Freedom Caucus right to hold McCarthy to his promises, whatever they perceive them to be, maybe whether they're different than what he perceives them to be. And that will manifest itself uh, potentially in some very uh, chaotic moments, I think. I think we shouldn't underestimate that. Now, will there be... Does it matter that they are there on routine legislation? Probably not, because the Republican House is going to pass a lot of stuff that the Democratic Senate is going to ignore or reject, and certainly a Democratic president would veto even if it got to his desk. It's not a question of the proactive legislation. It's a question of keeping things from falling apart vis-a-vis -vis debt ceiling and, and spending bills uh, that have to be done on some level or another. And I think the potential for chaos and 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 um and and you know um explosive scenarios here is pretty large and we shouldn't underestimate it sarah i want you to answer that too but um just for listeners so you know 15 or 19 of the 20 lawmakers that forced the 15 rounds of voters were part of this so-called freedom caucus can you how would you describe how do you characterize the freedom caucus just to give listeners a sense of who they are what they want and then to get back to jim's question of they're this narrow mi minority, but now how much power will they actually have? Oh, great. So the, the Freedom Caucus is the latest iteration over the last decade or so of fractures within the House Republican conference. Um, and, and no, we're all focused on the House. Uh, the Freedom Caucus doesn't really have a home. They have like a patron, sometimes Cruz, Senator Cruz, um, sometimes Senator Lee uh, over in, on the Senate Republican conference. But by and large, we're House focused here. Um, our shorthand for that caucus uh, is that we call them the far right. Um, that's probably true. Uh, that is, they're more conservative, as it were, um, than their rest of their Republican conference or the middle of the Republican conference. Um, but far right doesn't really distinguish those 1920. Um, and keeping in mind, the Freedom Caucus is actually closer to about 40 or 50. So we have, first of all, a fracture in the Freedom Caucus that we, we can come back to. But when we say far right, uh, what's really distinguishing them, if we look at the nature of their votes and so forth, is they're sort of anti-establishment and they're anti-McCarthy, who's emblematic of the establishment. They were anti-Boehner. They were sort of begrudgingly accepting of Speaker Ryan. Um, they, what makes them this anti-establishment? How do we know it? If you look at the roll call votes, they often vote against the big bipartisan final package, or they vote against the big package that comes out of the House from there during Republican majorities, right? They don't go along to get along. They you, you give them a seat at the table this time doesn't mean they're actually going to vote with you at the end, which we, we can come to. So they're a fringe on the far right, um, even though their ideology isn't necessarily all that different um, than, than their colleagues. Um, but we'll come to the strain here, certainly on their attitude, some of their attitudes about NATO, Europe, uh, support for Ukraine, and so forth. Um, back to, the, to Jim's question here, um, I think first, just to draw a sharp contrast with what we saw the last, uh, the last Congress, it was uh, in the scheme of things, a pretty remarkably productive Congress. There's certainly a lot of big things on its agenda. They didn't come near to addressing. Uh, immigration stands out. 
um, entitlement reform, right? Issues on the left uh, and the right there that I think we do need to call dysfunction in terms of congressional performance. Uh, but I think the, the contrast with this new Congress uh, will be pretty intense. I don't think we'll see anything like the slew of um, big, broad packages across the board, right? Gun rights, um, climate change, uh, and so forth, uh, violence against women, a whole host of issues on which Republicans, certainly the Senate, came to the table and helped negotiate. This Congress, certainly in the House, um, I, I agree with Peter, certainly there's a lot of uncertainty about what can happen there. Um, but 222 uh, currently, right? Uh, McCarthy, a speaker, can lose four. Um, that's like, you know, I'm really bad at analogies, but I think that's walking on the, the high wire in the circus. And uh, he's not, I wouldn't say that this team has been together in the minority at a little bit of practice early uh, after they regained the House uh, in 2011, but McCarthy was just very young back then. He was new, he was really new to that position. So um, we all said when Republicans took control uh, back in uh, 95, uh, there was a great book, very slim book called uh, Learning to Govern. Uh, they'd been out of power for a very long time. Um, I think watching the fireworks of Gingrich and so forth. There was a struggle. There was a really steep uphill curve. I think that uphill curve is still with us. Um, with respect to this question about oversight and attention to committee assignments and so forth, well, that's where the game will be to some extent uh, because there is no recognizable policy agenda for uh, for the Republicans. Um, and as Peter suggested, there'll be a lot of things passed. If they can get to 18, that will go over to a Senate graveyard where um, Democratic leaders are unlikely to, to even give the time of day to think about calling them up for consideration. And how do you, I mean, so arguably McCarthy is one of the weakest speakers we've seen in recent years, right, in, in kind of contemporary times. Um, he had to give away a lot. And one of the things, so there were there obviously the committee, um, the committees, but also this motion to vacate with the vote of no confidence. What does it mean, Sarah? We maybe we can start with you to have such a weak speaker. Like, you know, what what does that how practically speaking, what kind of implications does that have for the way that the way that Congress works? Well, um, first to keep in mind, he's coming a string of weak speakers in terms of on the Republican side, uh, Speaker Boehner and then Speaker Speaker Ryan. Um, and, uh, and it's not necessarily about the capabilities of each of those uh, leaders, but about the broader fractured Republican conference and how they lead it. What does it mean for McCarthy here? I, I think there, I put my finger on two things. So there, the actual changes to the rules, they haven't been that many um, beyond, say, uh, returning that motion, quote unquote, to vacate the speakership back to where it had been before Pelosi. But what really what McCarthy did was to make some commitments to members of the Freedom Caucus um, to give them seats at these leadership tables. He gave them seats at what we call the steering committee. It doesn't really doesn't really steer because this is Congress, but um, it does have uh, votes in terms of putting people on two committees. Now, keep in mind, uh, as speaker uh, on that steering committee, McCarthy keeps like four votes and everybody else gets one vote. So we've not like 
strip the speaker of all his clothes here. So there does remain some uh, uh, advantages to being speaker. But he's given seats at the table here in order, uh, which we'll see how well or how much Freedom Caucus members have put their finger around the scale here for particular members. But really the seat here, the other leadership table is the House Rules Committee, uh, which in the lingo, we think of it as the arm of the Republican leadership, their arm of any House leadership. Um, nine votes for the majority party, four votes for the minority party, but it appears uh, that there'll be three Freedom Caucus members uh, taking some of those nine seats. We all can do the math. Uh, there's the potential threat here for the Freedom Caucus to say, mm, if you don't put our amendments on the floor, if you don't advance this bill to the floor, us as the Rules Committee, which sets the agenda, um, then we're going to vote with the Democrats, which would be highly unusual uh, historically in that in that committee. So there you have it, right? How will the Rules Committee use its use its power having seats at the table? And just just to keep in mind, and this is, I think, the the core problem for McCarthy. He didn't demand anything in return for giving away the keys to the keys to the store. He needed the votes. He got the votes. Um, but when push comes to shove. Like that's to me what I'm keeping my eyes on. Like, is this a governable institution or, or isn't? And and with what obviously consequences as Peter has already uh, pointed us to. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks again. And Peter, did you want to add anything to that or uh, shall I ask a, a question? Yeah, no, no, feel free. I think, I, I think that's exactly right. Sarah's got, Sarah's got exactly right. And it's, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the way a speaker controls the house uh, is is going to be to some extent significantly altered here, and 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 I think that uh, uh, and that's the difference between the House and the Senate. You know, for our European listeners, they may not understand how important and how different it is in the House versus the Senate. You can do bipartisan deal making in the Senate in a way you cannot do in the House. That the that traditionally the majority party has a much stronger control over what gets to the floor, how it gets to the floor, what the rules are when you uh, put it on the floor in terms of amendments and so forth. And that's why the Rules Committee and, and the structure that Sarah's been talking about are so important because that's the way that happens. In the Senate, you can in theory at least pull together a coalition across lines to get to the 60 you need to get to. That doesn't happen in the House. And you're not gonna see Democrats trying to help out Speaker McCarthy here. Like there are moments in the past where you had a speaker of one party who might lose votes in his or her, you know, extreme wing and make it up by pulling votes from the moderate side of the other party, right? You're not going to see that happen here. Democrats have zero interest in helping a Speaker McCarthy. Now, if there's a deal that Biden has signed off on and McCarthy has signed off on, sure. But um, McCarthy's not going to sign off on any deal that puts him at risk of losing that speakership. And that's the motion to vacate that Sarah just referenced, that, that the motion to vacate, which or I think uh, maybe Andrea mentioned, it, it brings us back to a, a more European-style situation in parliament where you can have this effectively a vote of no confidence. Now, that that rule existed for a long time without much trouble uh, because people didn't take advantage of it. But under uh, Boehner in particular, the, the, the Freedom Caucus folks, a guy named Mark Meadows, who later became Trump's last chief of staff, became really focused on this as a way of influencing and even ousting a speaker of their own party. So that that precedent has been set. And which is why McCarthy was trying so desperately to avoid returning to that uh, that capacity for uh, you know that kind of a snap vote. As long as that snap vote is there, he's not going to want to make a deal with Biden that puts him in danger of losing a speakership. And there is the nub. 
Wow. Well, I um, sitting here listening to all this, I feel my stomach knots tightening up, tightening up as I think about the year ahead. But I'm thinking also about European leaders who are listening to this podcast and their stomach muscles, are they beginning to tighten up as well? And I guess the only thing I could say, because, you know, Andrea and I see many of our allies as they come through town and we speak with the embassies quite a bit, and they're all trying to put their heads around this in terms of how might this impact Europe or NATO or U.S. engagement in Europe? And when you think about it, um, except for assistance to Ukraine, which really was more, it seemed to be rhetorical flourishes uh, than anything else. Uh, but in terms of, of uh, Europe being in the crosshairs or NATO, certainly with this group, as Trumpian as they might be, I haven't heard anything necessarily that I would take seriously in terms of something aimed at, say, U.S. membership in NATO or aimed at the Europeans. I think I think the mood music, you know, that the Freedom Caucus puts out there about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and that type of thing doesn't bode well for working out something between European concerns and the U.S. legislation. But but other than that, I, I would think that for many European leaders, it's really a matter of watching and waiting and not getting so worried yet, because right now this is all internal U.S. domestic uh, concerns and issues and politics. And Europe's really not on the in the crosshairs. Would you would you say for European leaders that's a that watch and wait uh, and keep your fingers crossed is kind of the right position to have? Sarah. So I think it's a good question. And on the on the one hand, I I I think of the Senate here. Right. All of our attention you know, nationally and inside the Beltway has been absorbed by what's going on in the House. Uh, but if we go back to thinking about the Senate here, I think I've been in, impressed over the face of the first two years of the Biden administration. If I had to characterize uh, uh, what Mitch McConnell as the minority leader has been doing on the Republican side, he, he does seem to be kind of like kind of Washing, uh, trying to kind of squeeze out what we might think of that Trumpian view uh, that we see in the base of the party, sort of anti-Europe, anti, uh, anti-NATO, um, perhaps pro-Putin, uh, questioning on Ukraine, that McConnell, I think, to some large degree, has succeeded in kind, kind of keeping that at bay. Um, and we saw it in there was a vote on, uh, I guess, to uh, have uh, Finland and Sweden join NATO, whatever the technical step uh, first steps there are. Uh, there was one senator who voted against it, right, Josh Hawley from Missouri. And uh, I think just like going back to what that debate was about, you you heard folks like Senator Cruz say, what's your argument here? Like we, I think Holly was going on about how our main opponent and our foe is China. We should be all focused on China. And Senator Cruz was like, like, why not both? Like, what do you gain? Right. What do you gain? You lose by giving up on Europe. We need to be forceful in Europe and against China. And to the degree to which that remains the view uh, and continues to then draw in support for Ukraine, then I think to some extent, Jim, uh, that view is correct, which is watch and wait. Um, And would also suggest if we think over what's going, what might happen in the House, there does remain a sort of muscular Republican support uh, for doing more for Ukraine, more than what Biden uh, has been doing. Now, I, I do think votes on money for Ukraine could still be 
problematic, uh, at least getting um, McCarthy, a speaker, to agree to put a, a measure on the floor. Now, granted, you know, in the past, these Ukraine votes haven't always just been by themselves. They've often been tucked into these broader spending bills. So the question is, like, can, can that Ukraine coalition exist, right? Or does it get wrapped into all the turmoil over spending and cuts and, and so forth? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, th- I, th- I think that's totally right. I think the Ukraine funding issue for the now is, from the, the European perspective, is fine. Uh, first of all, the last Congress before leaving town approved tens of billions of dollars more, so that's not going to come up anytime soon. They've got a lot of money uh, sitting there in the tank to 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 provide arms and so forth for a while. So it's, there's nothing that's going to come up in the immediate future. Uh, that will require a vote. I think the pro-Putin caucus within the Republican Party is still relatively small, at least among elected officials. It may be large on the Fox uh, News primetime lineup uh, and in Mar-a-Lago. But for the moment in the House, there's still far more you know, support for Ukraine than there is uh, uh, questions about it. When McCarthy said that thing last fall about how he doesn't want to give a blank check, he didn't say it again. You know, he immediately, of course, uh, got slapped down by Mitch McConnell. Uh, as Sarah just talked about, McConnell's having a different view of, of of his responsibilities than McCarthy does. And I think that, you know, what you'll see is probably McCarthy, next time a, a funding bill comes up, you'll probably see some sort of effort to impose more conditions or to re- redirect some of where the money goes. There'll have to be some compromise, right? They, they will want less for governance and more for hardware perhaps or something like that or more oversight you know caveats that will provide you know more scrutiny blah 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 things that they can say they've done to make it different or better but i think on the broad strokes they want to be on the side of pro ukraine at the moment too now that doesn't mean that can't change what i would worry about if i were uh, somebody in charge of this and thank goodness i'm not is down the road, and this could be true on the left as well, there is an obvious fatigue factor uh, to worry about in the United States. We have a short attention span. It is a lot of money that we have put into this. And if this is, in fact, a war that's going to drag on for two or three or four more years, which certainly seems conceivable, it's not hard to imagine a situation months or or a year down the road where people say, oh, wait a second, we do have so many other needs, and we do have this big budget fight, and we are cutting money from this, that, the other thing. So why do we spend this much on, on, on foreign uh, needs and it's, it, 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 I don't think that's anywhere close to the majority view now, but it could be a drag and more of a factor, um, you know, a year from now. Yes, Sarah, do you want to weigh in on that longer term perspective? I mean, in, anything that you would add? Because I mean, I agree. It seems like for the time being, in the kind of foreseeable future, I agree entirely with you both that things look okay. But just the further out you look, obviously, the the more the uncertainty grows. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's the general consensus. Yeah, I mean the 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 only thing I'd add to to Peter's uh, suggestions there is we do run into quite quickly a presidential election and particularly a presidential nominating season, especially on the on the Republican side. And how those strains get played out, uh, what happens to the former president, like what like that could be one of those. Um, Picking time bombs here that change the alignments that you know refocus or change people's minds a bit more as things go on, and certainly um, depending on who's elected president in uh, 2024 um, is one of those junctures along the line along the road here. All right, at the same time as things are happening uh, in Europe and uh, Ukraine, um, that could 
um, could change like our perspective on, on that coalition. I think um, the other thing to keep in mind is that I think it was, you know, time is just one big black bag to me. <laughs> um, maybe it was this summer or the fall, that letter from the uh, progressives in the House about now's the time to negotiate that then quickly got, you know, withdrawn and head of the Progressive Caucus threw her staff under the bus uh, of that letter. Um, we don't need to go back into that too much, but it does sort of suggest that there may be limits of patience on the Democratic side, on the far left. And um, that's, I think I just, at this point, I just kind of keep my eye on, right? Because on the one hand, we, Peter started us off, right? we are an intensely partisan time. And um, I think uh, the, the, the pressure to stay on the team uh, even from the far left there, and to stay on the team with Biden is is pretty strong. Uh, and of course, many of the things that Biden emphasizes in why we want to support Ukraine um, are things I think progressives, you know, their values that are pretty important to them, right? You know, uh, think about Bernie Sanders and kind of anti-authoritarianism, right? Uh, sort of right side populism versus left side populism. And so to the extent that you have Biden making this pretty strong, I think, message that resonates with progressives, um, that's going to keep uh, them on on the team. But uh, as sort of Peter suggested, as you as you go down the line here, uh, as you move on, um, we got to be a little uh, also thinking about what's going on, I think, on the left of I think. Certainly, the, the 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 importance of that issue, if it's Trump and elevating it and making it more sailing and amplifying, um, that's probably a, a, a harder problem uh, and a more dire problem uh, for that Ukraine coalition um, than problems on the left. Maybe just to pick up on the 2024, the election is an important inflection point. Um, you know, Peter, what does you know, the, 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 the chaos around the speakership and, and maybe even the election itself, the, the legislative election, like, how would you, what did, what have you learned about the Republican party or how would, you know, what insight does that give us into the party? It clearly seems very incoherent. And certainly you've been talking about all the fractures within, but, you know, what, what does the Republican party today look like? And, and what does that mean for the 2024 election? Yeah, they're at a real moment of of uh, flux. I think at the moment, they, you know, Trump has been the dominant force now for six years, and the question is whether that's going to burn itself out at some point in the near future. Certainly, in politics, you go back in the history of politics, there is a sort of half life to to movements like this. Are we at that inflection point yet, or not? I think there may have been again some, you know. Uh, wishful thinking on the part of a lot of people that the midterm suggested that that was sort of the the crescendo and for Trump and he's on the way down and that may be but I don't I would be careful about getting too far ahead of things he's still the most dominant force in that in that party uh he did in fact uh, make the decisive phone calls on the floor to to seal the deal for McCarthy which means that McCarthy is ever more tethered to him uh than he already had been um, a lot of his candidates went down in the 2022 uh, midterms, and he's getting blamed, understandably, for that by a lot of Republicans. But these are the same folks who thought he was done after he insulted John McCain, after he insulted the Gold Star family, after he had the Access Hollywood tape, after Charlottesville, after this, after that. So I think that you know, assuming that Trump is 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 on the on the decline, is is I would be careful about that. Um, we'll have to see how that plays out. He has, keep in mind, he kept that television show of his on air for 14 years. 
a show that was basically the same thing night after night. Each week it was the same show. And somehow he kept people coming back for more. He is a master showman and he has shown the ability over time to keep things fresh, if you will. Now, fresh may mean new outrages, more out, more uh, provocative uh, comments or statements or proposals or what have you. And he, and as Sarah said, he's the X factor when it comes to European relations. He, he our, In our book, we write pretty definitively he wanted to get out of nato and had to basically be you know uh uh hogtied by his staff to keep from doing it who knows what he would do in a second term when he would not have the same kind of staff around him the people who stopped him or discouraged him or urged him against doing things that people thought were erratic or uh risky in the first term will not be there if there's a second term and i think all bets are off at that point Sarah, I'll let you add, but really quick, Peter, any news you want to break about President Biden's intentions to run or not run or kind of it's been swirling around on the news, you know, in the wake of certainly with the classified information and whether that delays or derails or any any insights into what you think um, the Biden camp is thinking? Yeah, look, I think that they don't think that that's going to be a big issue for them. Um, That, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a potential threat. I think the biggest consequence of the of the Biden classified documents case is that it lets Trump off the mat. Uh, it makes it that much harder for certainly for uh, politically to go after him on that, even though the cases are radically different in their substance and detail. It just makes it so much more difficult to go after him politically, and it may even make it more difficult to go after him legally. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to overstate that. In terms of Biden running again, I, I am now convinced by every single person who is around him who has said repeatedly again and again that he is, in fact, running. At some point, I suppose we ought to listen. And take them at their face value. I think that absent some change, uh, he is going to run. Now, does that mean he will make it all the way to the election day without a change? Is possible not? I mean, I, the elephant in the room is still that he is, in fact, 80 years old. Uh, he would be 82 on election day. He would be 86 at the end of a second term. Anything can happen between now and then. And and we should, you know, we'll have to watch and see if that happens. But I think you should expect sometime in the next two months that he will formally announce his candidacy. And I think they're trying to time it for things like quarterly fundraising targets and when do they want to announce for the purposes of of legal uh, restrictions and requirements that come with a formal campaign. But there's not much doubt at this point in Biden world that he's running. Sarah, um, I mean, feel free to definitely weigh in on any of that. I mean, I think the other other, um, kind of narratives that you hear from European interlocutors is you know, where the U.S. is headed long term, right? And so there was obviously that collective sigh of relief when President Biden won election and he's back. And yes, we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement and the U.N. Human Rights Council and, you know, yada, 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 America's back. And yet now we have the Inflation Reduction Act and there's been a lot of um, data points now that the Europeans are looking at and thinking like, huh, you know, it, you know what, what? What should we expect out of this United States moving forward? Are they a reliable partner? And I wonder. I mean, just your sense of these strands, either within the on both sides, actually, with the protectionism and other things. Should Europeans be worried about where the United where the United States is headed from a an, an alliance perspective? Well, I, I think the the larger long term issue here is. First, as we've been talking about on the Republican side, we don't know where that party is headed. 
right? And 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 for all the reasons we've been talking about, but there's not. It's it's tough in party politics in the U.S. Given the way our parties run, they don't obviously look anything like European parties. They're very driven from the ground up, right? You can win a nomination with thirty percent of the vote if you have a lot of competitors uh, running running for the nomination. And elites, certainly in the Republican Party as the establishment, don't have a lot of sway over the base in terms of voters. So um, there's always going to be some uncertainty here, but especially within the party, right? If not Trump, then who, right? Who else? And it's not clear that the folks who could win a primary for the president on the Republican side, it's not clear that that they think the same way as Trump. They may be more extreme uh, with attitudes towards Europe and allies in the long term. So um, I, I sort of put that in one bucket of uh, that I would put in the concern bucket uh, lane there. Um, uh, other issues here, certainly, and this gets a little outside my expertise, I'll defer to Peter, is this sort of broader debates about where the U.S. should be looking, right? Is the main concern about Asia? Is the main concern about China? Or is it about Europe? How do you do both? Um those, I think, are should be on the radar screens across Europe about how the U.S. is going to position itself and where its priorities are going to be. And then the third bucket of our financial stability. And there, in the long term, um, we do have uh, really what many people would say is unsustainable commitments uh, in the form of how we do uh, our social welfare and our um, healthcare safety nets, right? In terms of social security commitments, in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, um, the aging of our population. Um, so there are long-term problems there in terms of financial stability. Um, and as we are going to just get a glimpse of this year, there's there's no it's it's very hard uh, to get lawmakers today to make decisions for the future, right? Because the electoral rewards and the penalties are really clear. Uh, nobody wants to be the one to curtail social security benefits. Nobody wants to be the one to make that vote. So, and, and that's going to have repercussions for the U.S. for its defense budget, uh, for its outlook, and so forth. Um, I do wonder in the, in that realm. On the bright side, uh, at least so far, the right the dollar remains the reserve currency. Uh, the Fed remains the preeminent monetary policy, econ really economic policy maker. Um, there's a good deal of stability there uh, for the United States. So, um, yeah, I think it should temper. I don't think Europeans are scot free now that Trump is gone, uh, and and of course much of that Trumpyism like in the trade policy remains there. So, um, yeah, I think these are kind of troubled, troubled waters ahead, if you ask me. I know Jim wants to jump in with a question, but I, I'm going to just pull that thread for a second to kick it to Peter. Um, in the Russia watching community, we always think about can Putinism outlive Putin? Um, to what extent can Trumpism outlast Trump himself? Yeah, I think it does. I think Trumpism didn't start with Trump. He came along at the opportune moment when the country was in this, or at least part of the country was in a mood looking for somebody like him. We were already a divided, we call our book The Divider, but he, we were already a divided country in a deeply partisan, polarized way. Uh, before he came along, he just happened to fit that moment so neatly and to exacerbate it and to take advantage of it and profit from it. He was an expert at it, right? He 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 is a he is a master at at, at polarization. 
Um, but if he were to be gone individually, that doesn't mean that the, the, the forces that brought him to the to the fore are gone. And you can see some of these uh, folks, as Sarah talks about, who are playing to his uh, to be his successor in that in that sense. And in some ways, you know, even more Trump than Trump. Right. As, as Sarah just said, I mean, like, look at DeSantis. So uh, Trump talked about as president uh, dumping uh, illegal migrants in sanctuary cities in liberal areas, blue states, in other words, as sort of a F you, if you will, to, to his opponents saying, well, you love them so much, fine, you take care of them. He didn't actually do it, right? He loved getting people all worked up by saying it. He didn't do it. Guess what? DeSantis did it. And so I think that, you know, on some level, DeSantis is seen as a smarter, more, you know, effective version of Trump, right? Not as, as, maybe not as likely to subvert the constitution. Okay, that's an important thing. But at the same time, it doesn't mean he won't actually proceed and even go further than Trump would on some of the really more ideological edged uh, parts of the Trump agenda. I know we're almost out of time, uh, but I'll just say, if let's take us back to Europe for a second. And if you were, if you were uh, sitting in the Kremlin, if you were Putin uh, and you're looking at all this chaos happening and, and where it might go, you know, he's playing for time with Ukraine. You know, he feels if he can, uh, you know, hang in there, uh, there'll be fatigue, uh, not just in Europe, uh, but also in the U.S. And Peter, you, you mentioned that, and I think it's very true. Um, and so he's seeing these forces gathering in the House. Uh, he's seeing how hard it will be for for Biden to put out these assistance packages because, you know, the House will certainly make it painful to do and maybe even hold them up. Uh, but uh, but so what do you what do you think Putin is doing? Is he got his fingers crossed about the election that maybe Trump will come back? And what's how does all of this look, do you think, to to uh, to Putin? Well, I think, look, I think that, that we go back to the 2016 election interference. His original goal before deciding that he was going to throw in with Trump, his original goal and still I think his primary goal was to encourage dis, uh, disruption in our system. Right to encourage the kind of fracturing and 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 um, you know at a, at each other's throats kind of politics that we have seen come to the fore. That more than anything, I think, is his priority. Now, Trump came along and seemed to be a perfect vehicle for him, and he and he did ultimately, in terms of the intelligence uh, efforts in the United States, try to to tilt it toward Trump. But broadly speaking, he just he wants us to be internally at odds with each other, so as to be externally weak. Now, I think he was surprised. Andrea may have a better sense of this than I do, but I think he was surprised because uh, in February 25th, because I think that after the invasion the day before, he had thought that we would do the same thing we did after the Georgia War of 2008 and after the Crimea annexation of 2014. We would we would protest, we would squawk, we would impose some sanctions, we would you know say we will never accept this, but in the end of the day, it won't be anything that really hurt Putin. And I think that he was surprised by how strong and uniform and 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 uh, um, determined that the Western alliance has been. Uh, it certainly not worked out the way he thought it was. Not only is NATO not weakened, it's even closer to his border. It has a longer border now with Finland coming in than we ever had. And Ukraine did not welcome Russian troops. There was a reporting by my colleagues in Moscow suggesting that they thought that 50% of the Ukrainian army would switch sides. He miscalculated at every step along the way, I think, this past year. Now, his hope here is that we are so uh, uh, um, broken politically, internally, 
that we will eventually, you know, uh, uh, not uh, uh, live up to the commitments that we have made, and he will finally be able to take advantage of that. But that's probably his strongest hope at the moment. Sarah, Sarah? you can feel free to answer that too, or and and or um, if you're looking at the year ahead would you distill like two to three expectations? So looking at this Congress, like what, what do you expect? And, and, and especially for a European audience, you know, what, what should they expect out of this Congress? Well, I think let's still say three things and let's see if I have three. Uh, first, last Congress's like flood of bipartisan uh, achievements, um, they should not expect that. I think we've lost unified party control uh, we've lost Democratic unified party control, meaning small, a uh, big D Democratic who come in with a big policy agenda. That's not this particular split and divided cons. Um, second, they should expect uh, a fair amount of chaos and uncertainty. I think at the end of the day, they will raise the debt limit. They will find a solution to spending uh, spending bills. They will pass a defense bill, the other sort of quote unquote, must pass thing on the agenda. Um, but it could be kind of rocky getting there. Um, so first, not the last Congress. Second, it's going to be a bit rocky. Um, but third, uh, it's at the end of the day, there does remain this sort of kernel of bipartisanship that is possible. It can be built if the electoral incentives of both parties lead them eventually to the table to get what needs to be done. But it's really not because anything is naturally bipartisan or naturally partisan. The two parties both need the incentives to go to the table. And that's really the challenge here. Like, what's McCarthy going to do when he's tugged and tugged from the right, when the rest of his party or some other group in his party not willing to go that far? Um, we're so consumed with the House I would keep our eyes on the Senate. I would really keep our eyes on what is possible there. Um, and that's going to tell us an awful lot about the end game, uh, perhaps even more so uh, than all the details of what we're seeing in, in the House. Well, we almost ended on an optimistic note. That was as close to optimistic <laughs> right. as I think we might be able to muster at this moment. So that's a perfect place. Um, Sarah and Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I learned a lot, so I'm sure our listeners will too. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much. Wonderful. Keep writing those books. Keep <laughs> writing. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. It's good to see you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.